This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to the Slate Spoiler Special for Jojo Rabbit, the new comedy starring writer-director Taika Waititi as Adolf Hitler. I'm joined in New York by two Slate editors and critics, Dan Kois. Hello. Hey, Dan. And Sam Adams. Hello. Hey, Sam. And you are Forrest Wickman, and an editor I, at Slate. And I am Forrest Wickman, an editor at Slate. Thank you, Dan. Also played by Taika Waititi. Yes. Also, yes. All three of us are being played by Taika Waititi. None of us are dressed as Hitler. Uh, <laughs> we restrained ourselves from making any Heil jokes thus far in this podcast. Um, but I do want to start with a thumbs up, thumbs down assessment from each of us, especially because this has been a pretty controversial movie. Sam, I have a little bit of a sense of what you think, but I think you also have the best sense for what the discourse around this movie has been thus far. So maybe you can summarize the discourse and then place yourself within it. I'm sure I'll briefly summarize the discourse. I mean, the critical reaction to this has been very split um, since it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in September. I mean, it won the audience award at at TIFF, which is probably the closest thing we have to a, a Best Picture Bellwether at this point. So right. it is, Green Book won it last year, yeah, right? And yeah, then Green Book on. won. Um, yeah, I mean, the Three Billboards won the year before that, which right. did not end up winning, but got a ton of nominations. Um, so it is a crowd-pleasing movie about uh, Nazis, um, which is itself a neat summary of both what people like about it and why people raise objections to it. I am on the side of thinking it is an intelligent movie that's, you know, very funny. I would not pile too much on top of it in, in terms yeah. of, you know, it, it being a kind of groundbreaking depiction or anything like that. But I I enjoyed it. Um, and it, I think it is thoughtful, interesting, and timely. Dan, did you like this movie? Were you offended by it? Uh, I was not offended by it. Um, I did think that, and we'll talk about this, I did think that a lot of the plays that the movie made didn't work. Um, Mm -hmm. and that this is the first time that Taika Waititi has found uh, a subject that is bigger maybe than his sort of go-to mode of addressing both the serious and the funny in the world. I give it a qualified thumbs up as a comedy and a thumbs down as an anti-hate satire. (laughs) Right, as it's being advertised uh, on billboards and such, lest anybody think it is... Pro-Nazi. A pro-Nazi movie. (laughs) A pro-hate satire? That's right. I felt pretty similarly to you guys. It sounds like maybe I liked it slightly more than you, Dan, although the more I think about this movie, the less I like it, I would say. like I had a very good time watching it. I found the ending, which we'll get to, to be pretty moving, um, although also a little bit glib. I mean, I think that Taika Waititi has never made a really bad movie, or at least not that I've seen. I haven't seen Eagle vs. Shark, for example, which it's, I know is more mixed It's up. bad. 
It's bad. Okay. Yes, we have the definitive chronicler of Taika Waititi here. Dan uh, profiles Taika for the Times Magazine that was, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not... It, this felt like a bigger swing from him, and I don't think it was a total whiff, but I think he ended up kind of like scoring a single or something. I didn't intend to go full baseball metaphor on That's that. A, the baseball metaphor maybe is that it's a bigger swing um, and that therefore it can cause bigger errors, right? Like you can yeah. accomplish more, but a lot more can go wrong. Right. Yes. He I is, will not. He's, he's swinging for the fences, as one might say. This yes. is really a, an enter, it is a, not... <laughs> invigorating baseball podcast. Yes. We're fully approaching this movie as Americans. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, you know, is somewhat appropriate in that it is a movie that takes place in Germany, but has all sorts of different kinds of accents in it. Uh, Sam, why don't you sort of set the scene uh, for the world of this movie and our hero within it? It is Germany in 1944, nearing the end of the war, but not at it. Um, our hero is Jojo Betzler, um, who is a young uh, member of Hitler Youth, um, being basically trained up to replace... Germany is kind of dwindling uh, human resources for frontline soldiers. He's not not a sort of enthusiastic uh, Nazi, but he, neither is he a, a dissenter. He sort of absents himself in part because he just doesn't fit in. Like he's kind of a weirdo and he's bullied and stuff. So like a lot of kids, he kind of comes up with an imaginary friend um, to have uh, a confidant, someone to talk to. Um, and in his case, this imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler. Which leads to our first scene, which uh, I'm hoping you can describe, Dan. Uh, Yeah, the first scene of the movie is Jojo in his room before his mirror giving himself a pep talk. Um, And then the pep talk is punctuated by further encouragement from that imaginary best friend, Hitler, um, who's played by YTT. YTT is described to him as a 10-year-old's idea of Adolf Hitler, which I think isn't exactly accurate, which I would like to talk to you guys about. But it is a, like, comic friendly version of this character who has authority uh, in Jojo's mind, who also helps him through tough times and commiserates with him when things are bad. There are a lot of great jokes tied up in their relationship. There's a lot of great gags tied up in the various uh, physical comedy bits that YTT does with this character, with the absurd things that he has him saying. But yeah, the movie begins with Jojo trying to psych himself up and in fact getting encouraged by Hitler to heil him as he's never heiled before, to heil him with great vigor and enthusiasm. Uh, and you're not heiling me enough, Jojo. You can do better than that. Uh, it's like a very funny scene. Yeah, right. And it has this like a slight meta aspect because you have the director also as one of the stars of the scene, like essentially directing his lead within the scene, except for he happens to be Hitler. And it leads to what I think is maybe the best sequence of the movie or my favorite, which is he gets so hyped about heiling everyone that he starts just running down the streets of an unidentified major German city, just like heiling every single person he passes. And then we start to hear, um, I want to hold your hand by the Beatles. And then it starts intercutting uh, scenes from Beatlemania with sort of crowd scenes from, I think it's Triumph of the Will, as yep. you noted in your piece from Toronto, Sam. Um, and I, I mean, there's like a lot going on in the scene. I mean, the scenes of him running down the street are very sort of hard day's night there's like a a bunch of like split screen in there and i mean it's basically to state the obvious we can a lot of spoiler specials for comedies is basically explaining jokes um but it's making a sort of parallel right between the hysteria of beatlemania and 
you know, the intense fervor for Hitler, which is something the movie sort of plays with a lot because to a child, those things are not that different. Right. right. They're both examples of a kid wanting to be included in what he sees as like a dominant, exciting cultural narrative right. uh, with everyone else. And in fact, it's not only I want to hold your hand. It's the German version of I right. want to hold your hand that the Beatles recorded. Come give me your Deine Hand. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I think that I mean, that moment, which is sort of the opening credits of the film is that sort of the buy in for this this movie. I mean, if you are kind of repelled by that idea you can probably walk out at that point. Like you're yeah. not, you're not going to enjoy this film. I think it's doing two things, which is obviously to suggest to draw a parallel between, uh, you know, the rise of the third Reich and, and Beatlemania. And just say that this was something that just kind of, you know, swept the nation. Everybody got caught up in. And also to particularly with regard to our protagonist to say like, this is just a kid who's kind of into the things that other people are into. And he's not, for example, like a diehard anti-Semite um, or someone who believes that like, um, you know, homosexuals and Roma should be should be put to death. You know, like he's just kind of doing this because it's like what everybody else is doing. And you need to believe that about him in order for him to be a kind of tolerable protagonist. Kind of, although he is, I mean, actually an anti-Semite in, in the sense that he hates the cartoonish version of Jews right. that he has been taught that Jews are. And the movie does play a lot with uh, a lot of uh, anti-Semitic stereotypes being proclaimed loudly and with great joy by various characters, some right. of them mockingly, some of them wholeheartedly. And that's one of the ways where I sort of felt like the mode that YTT loves so much of like showing a child's eye view of really difficult issues didn't always work for me in this movie because I had trouble, even though it's, it is a uh, half-Jewish director writing and directing these scenes in them as Hitler, I still found it really hard to stomach like the constant talk in this movie about Jews' horns and their love of money and how they live underground and shit like that. Like At some point, it, it, like it stopped being funny to me, possibly intentionally, but not in a way that was effective. Yeah, I mean, I found all of that stuff to be a really mixed bag. We should get moving to, you know, one of the scenes where we see them start to get indoctrinated, especially because I do. I mean, I think that a lot of what the movie is about is this exact distinction that we're kind of arguing about and which I think the movie doesn't quite know what to do with, which is like how much are these beliefs sincere and do we blame individuals for them versus what I think the really the movie is most effective at is conveying like what it's like to be in a society that gets swept up in something completely silly and insane um, and then what happens when you know that insanity or that that era ends um, which you know has parallels that we'll get into but um we then move quickly to uh, scenes of him getting indoctrinated at this hitler youth camp which did you guys get a moonrise kingdom vibe at oh, all yes, like there's definitely so. some wes anderson and yeah, Taika's, yeah. and and i think some of it is also them drawing on common influences but dan maybe you can describe that camp a little bit and also the the leaders of that camp that we meet it's a late in the war hitler youth camp which means that only the worst of the worst soldiers are left to run it um and uh the two 
main characters we see running it uh, are Sam Rockwell as Captain Klenzendorf, um, who lost an eye in a ill-timed raid and was demoted to running Hitler Youth Camp, uh, and who we learn over the course of the movie has somewhat mixed sympathies uh, with the Nazi state. Uh, and then Rebel Wilson as a character who I don't know that she was named anywhere in the movie, but IMDb has her as Fraulein Rom. <laughs> But she's just like an absolutely insane Rebel Wilson character who happens to speak in a German accent and loves Nazis. And like speaks in a German accent sometimes. Sometimes, I think. Like yeah. all of the accents kind of really tend to come and go. And, and and what, she's Australian originally. So there's you have like Australian people playing Germans, Kiwis playing Germans, uh, Americans playing Germans. Um, all in widely varying German accents. Yes, and some have yes. with no accents at all. Like right down to like the kid who plays... Jojo's best friend, who's straight up a kid out of Hogwarts, right? right. Uh, with like the plummiest British accent you ever heard. So we get them, uh, these instructors trying to indoctrinate them uh, with scenes that I think it sounds like we all agree were sort of mixed in terms of how funny and successful they are. One one quote I did write down was, "We Aryans are one thousand times more advanced and civilized than any other race. It's time to burn some books." Uh, which I thought was pretty pretty solid. It's pretty clear what the the joke is there. Um, and then we get a little bit of our protagonist's reluctance again to go along with this. Sam, maybe you can talk about how Jojo gets his name. Uh, Jojo gets his name because they are uh, teaching these kids to kill. Um, and they're using little kind of, you know, straw dummies that they're bayoneting, but then they decide to, you know, move on to live creatures and they ask him to strangle a rabbit and uh jojo betzler uh declines he does not want to do that and so he is mockingly thereafter referred to as jojo rabbit by his um cohort i guess his colleagues one of one of his horrible peers yes one of whom steps in and enthusiastically strangles the rabbit so you know some of the criticisms i've read of this movie suggested that the movie sort of implies that all nazis are, are kind of you know good at heart or misled but i think it's important that the movie sets jojo apart from the people around him and it partly it is just his sort of ineptitude that saves him but he is not um taking to this training in the way that a lot of the other kids are yeah, right. We see a real mix among among the kids, um, which also allows us to enjoy such pieces of slapstick during the sequence as when one kid is just attempting to throw a knife. He's practicing knife throwing by throwing his knife against the tree and it like hits the tree and then bounces back and just stabs him in the thigh or the arm or somewhere, which again, I laughed. Look, this movie is full of great gags like Taika Waititi can really write a keg and he's been workshopping the script for like 15 years oh I didn't know that oh yeah he wrote this like the Sundance screenwriters lab around the time of Eagle versus Shark like the first draft of this and so this is something that he's taken to like numerous screenwriting labs that he's been developing forever that he couldn't get financing for until he had some kind of clout he could throw around and this is as we've discussed a couple of times this is like an actual example of someone using right. Marvel money to make a passion project. And we, that actually hasn't happened that many times. Almost the only example. It's like this and the John Favreau movie Chef. Right. And that's it. That's it. And that, it's like that's the, the if, if the yeah. stated if like the silver lining of Marvel movies is that it gives a bunch of ambitious directors a chance to play on bigger palettes and then make the things they want to make like that doesn't happen very often. And make the things they want to make like more Marvel movies. Right. Right. <laughs> 
Um, so we, we have to get uh, to our other two main characters, which we meet um, when JoJo's back at home. I mean, the first one is his mother, who's played by Scarlett Johansson. Her allegiances are a little bit mysterious at first, or at least through the eyes of this child. Um, Very unmysterious to us, I think. She, Almost I mean, immediately. It's, it's you see that she's not like sort of an enthusiastic backer of uh, JoJo's day job. Right. Um, and right. And, and indeed, it does not take long before we somewhat have them revealed by the fact that Jojo discovers in his home the movie's other main character, who is the Jewish uh, young, I guess what, she you'd say she's a teenager? Yeah, a Jewish teenager. Her name's Elsa. She's played by Thomason McKenzie, uh, who is really great in Leave No Trace, kind of came out of nowhere with that movie, and it was really nice to see her in this again. Um, and she's introduced, and this is a, another one of the many sequences in which this movie is playing with fire a little bit, um, but she's introduced via essentially a series of horror tropes. Um, I, I thought this was, again, pretty effective because it's so clear that we're just seeing this through the child's eyes and that it's so ridiculous to watch this incredibly normal and average young girl appear as if she is like the villain in some Japanese horror movie like The Grudge or The Ring to this young boy. Yeah, I love that sequence. Like I like that's a case where the movie sort of earns and uses its child's eye view in like a surprising and interesting way. And the introduction of her as uh, something horrible hiding inside his house, something that upheaves both his view of his own life and his view of his mother is like really well done. I have not read it, but just from what I've read about it, I mean, the book that this um, movie is is based on um, is not at all. I mean, first of all, there's no imaginary Hitler in it, but it's also not funny at all. Like yeah. it is not drawn from a comic source. So I think that sequence is, is maybe kind of truer to the source material. The rest of it, if you've seen his other movies, you can very clearly tell it is sort of 110% Taika Waititi. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. We're probably, what, 25 minutes in, into the movie at this point. I feel like for the next 50 minutes or so, not a ton happens except for we just get to know all the characters better, right? Like, right. We see JoJo and Elsa building their relationship, which is going to end up being somewhat core to the movie, right? We see JoJo start to overcome his mistrust of her. We see her start to overcome her extremely rightful mistrust of him. And part of that is done through, like, subtle character moments, and part of it is done through, like, very blunt, like, oh, you're a Jew, but you don't hang from the ceiling like a bat jokes. And then a lot of it is her sort of playing on that so that he doesn't kind of run off and, like, tell everybody that that she's there. She's like, well, I'm going to use my sort of, you know, magic powers as a Jew to... To cut your Nazi head right. off. Yes. She weaponizes yeah. these. So she's like, in fact, I, you know, I just, I, you know, I'm not hanging from the ceiling now because I was hanging from the ceiling, you know, before right. you walked in right. or whatever. Like, so. I mean, the other relationship that is developed is between Jojo and his mother. We learn a little bit about the father who is out of the picture and is a little bit of a mystery through this portion of the movie where we're told he's off fighting, but maybe he's dead. It's implied kind of part of why Hitler is appearing to him. He is, in addition to imaginary friend, kind of a surrogate father for him, too. (laughs) Yes. 
Hitler helps with his daddy issues. <laughs> and all of this uh, sort of culminates, I think, you know, after 45 minutes or an hour or so of this uh, middle section of the movie with sort of the inevitable arrival of the Gestapo sniffing around the house looking for Elsa or any other signs of, you know, subversiveness in this house. Um, we should talk about the sequence a little bit just because it includes Stephen Merchant, I think is also one of the better comic sequences in the movie. So the Gestapo agent played by Merchant, and then you get another instance of in the middle of this pretty tense sequence, every time a new character enters a room, they must be greeted with another Heil Hitler. And then the number of people in each room just keeps escalating until there's like 12 people. And every time somebody new enters, you get 12 new Heil Hitlers. Great gag. Extremely great gag. (laughs) You know, one thing that this movie is totally trying to do, right, is it's trying to play on a whole bunch of different levels at once on the like very classic gaggy level of something like that or like the literal joke about German shepherds that appears halfway through the movie, which are like... Like not even like Monty Python levels. It's of, like that's like a Zucker Abrams Zucker yeah. joke. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. what it totally. is. Yeah, it's a Zazy joke. And like and so in a movie that is also, you know, rings great pathos out of characters being killed, uh, characters we have grown to like being killed, like that's a pretty bold choice. YTT has always said that he thinks of himself as making sad movies with funny bits in them or funny movies with sad bits in them. And this seems like his attempt to go as far as possible in each extreme, right? To not have something that's a little sad and a little funny, but have something that has Zucker Abrams Zucker jokes and collaborators being hanged in the public square. Yeah. So Dan is sort of getting to sort of the biggest surprise in this movie. I don't think you could quite call it a twist. So early in the movie, um, Jojo and his mom see a bunch of resistance fighters being hung in the town square. I said collaborators before, but they were clearly not. Sorry, they were resistance fighters. Um, and uh, and they're all hung with these uh, little stickers attached to them, stickers which are encouraging Germans to fight against the Reich and to embrace the, their coming allied liberation. Um, and we know as the movie goes on that um, that Scarlett Johansson's character is doing some work with these people, that she's passing secret messages, that she's, in fact, leaving these stickers around town. Maybe two-thirds of the way through the movie, Jojo is in the town square, and he uh, is very upset And but at one point, but he sees a butterfly fluttering through the town square, and he follows that butterfly uh, around and slowly becomes more happy, and we become more happy along with him until the butterfly lands on the uh, very identifiable shoe of his mother, who is now hanging from a scaffold in the town square. She has been hung for resisting the Reich. Through the movie, there was a whole gag about, uh, I guess, sort of a gag, but then it turns into something other than a gag here, in which JoJo's mom is constantly tying his shoes for him because he can't do it himself. Her shoe dangling in front of JoJo's face is untied, and he attempts to tie it uh, at that moment. Uh, And it's a very strikingly filmed and very hard-to-watch scene. It's played visually, comically, and that there's a visual pun and a, like a weird moment of business with the butterfly and the shoe. But it's played completely straight emotionally, and we get the full force of this kid's sadness and rage at what he's seeing. In a way, it's sort of of a whole of the whole movie for me, and that is like a pretty fucking bold choice yeah. to do this. And I don't mind that choice, even as I don't think all the choices like it worked. Yeah, I mean, 
But for me, I will say this particular choice worked. I mean, or at least this moment. Mm. Uh, I mean, Sam, were you genuinely moved despite all of the laughs and all of the Aju Gesundheit jokes <laughs> by the sudden death of the mother? I mean, I was. I mean, I think this is, I mean, like Scarlett Johansson is, is clearly in a sort of very good period right now. I mean, I think yeah. I might have seen this Jojo Rabbit on the same day as Marriage Story, which which she's just incredible. And um, so, I mean, she does, you know, make this character sort of something that you really you feel for. And I think that moment is, you know, powerful. Well, at the same time, I mean, it, it's pushing it. Like, it's real sentimental. Sure. It's not, you know, it is, like, not just, like, pulling heartstrings. They were, like, being attached to a tow truck driven at high speed, fast and furious style. I mean, it's... It's, it's, your heartstrings will be ripped from your body yeah. by Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's a it's like a hairpin turn towards extreme darkness that I think the movie mostly pulls off, and then the movie enters what I think of, or at least I'm thinking of right now, is kind of its like duck soup phase, mm. where it just becomes total. Anarchy. I mean, the term, I guess, is like anarchic comedy and those contradictions in tone that you were talking about, Dan, between the extreme darkness and the extreme slapstick comedy get even more heightened in the last 20 minutes or so of this movie, which maybe you can talk about how that happens. Yeah, well, the allies invade. The allies reach this town in Germany and the soldiers who are left and the townspeople take up arms to battle them. And so in the midst of bombs falling and planes flying overhead and people fighting for their lives. You also have moments like rebel Wilson strapping bombs to kids and telling them, okay, go hug that guy in the American flag uniform. Uh, or Which Sam, is like simultaneously one of the darker moments and one of the funnier right, moments. Or right. Sam Rockwell wearing an, like an absurd outfit he's designed himself and shooting a gun that plays music. Like that makes like basically no sense at all. Can we pause and talk about Sam Rockwell and that <laughs> sequence briefly a little bit? I, I mean, I basically just want you guys to attempt to explain that to me. There is also, and I am not sure whether these two events are connected, but I suspect they are. There's like a, a sort of long lingering glance between him and his uh, second in command, who's played by Alfie Allen, um, it where seems they almost we're meant kiss. to believe they're deeply in love. Yes, and and then I think it's not a coincidence that he emerges in the final act, you know, in essentially a bunch of makeup acting very theatrically. It was like is is he appeared as like Berlin era David Bowie. Right. Yeah. There's one way to look at it, I think, where it's in keeping with his desire throughout the movie to sort of play at war, despite the fact that he is never allowed to actually do so. It's in, That's one way to look at it. There's another way to look at it where it's about his ambiguous allegiances. And so maybe that's why he's only sort of playing at fighting for the Nazis. And there's another way to look at it where it's playing with stereotypes about gay people in order to make this character what exactly like it's part of his subversiveness and i mean is this how which of these ways did you guys see it i saw it as none of those ways <laughs> as just like a series of gags that may or may not have been connected but that certainly didn't pay off in any connected way to someone viewing the movie so you you saw him as implied to be potentially gay but that to be completely unrelated to the makeup and so on yeah no probably related to the makeup but unrelated to say his political sympathies or his desire to undercut the military or support the resistance or anything. yeah 
I think of those things as mostly separate, although it makes sense that during a period where gay people were also being killed, that if he was gay, then that might also overlap with this. This is a lot on Sam Rockwell and Albie right. Allen, but I've wanted to. Like, I think this movie is not designed to support any kind of uh, like truly um, nuanced uh investigation like i don't think that's the kind of movie this is for better and for worse right i mean it does definitely seem like it's kind of throwing fascistic spaghetti at a wall yes. um for a lot of it I, I, fascistic pulling spaghetti your heart, is the worst <laughs> pulling your heartstrings with a monster truck it's like it's yeah. not it is not it is a blunt it is a series of blunt instruments used in interesting ways at a very obvious target and it's so blunt it's like I can't imagine the idea of another movie literally putting an anti-hate satire in its marketing materials. Right. But with this movie, like you're like, oh, yes, that is – I guess that's what it is. Sam, are you going to save me from my confusion about Sam Rockwell and <laughs> Alfie Allen? I'm not sure I can. No, I think, I, I think I'm in the Dan corner. I think that it is just sort of signifying the things you're kind of getting – anarchic and, and kind of nutty and like off the rails at that point. I mean, I think it is an interesting idea that, you know, part of Sam Rockwell's sort of lackluster allegiance to the Reich has to do with him being gay or, or something other than, you know, as straight as Hitler would want him to be. I don't know. But. Right. I mean, maybe this is stuff that over the course of the 10 or so years that Taika Waititi spent working on this movie, he like thought about and then elements of each of these ideas made it their way in. But it, like the final result is not totally clear. We should just get to the ending of this movie, which perhaps could be summed up as Jojo having to choose between Elsa, who at this point he started to really have a crush on mm. um, and his, you know, surrogate father figure, uh, Adolf Hitler. Um, Sam, can you describe this kind of breakup scene a little bit? Um, I have I have one quote written right, down, which right. is from Adolf Hitler just saying, Heil me just a little. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, basic, basically, you know, Jojo has come to uh, have, you know, some sort of feelings for this uh, Jewish uh, young woman who's been hiding in his walls. Um, and he kind of, you know, breaks up with, with Hitler and uh, Hitler is, you know, trying to kind of, you know, get back in his good graces and just asking for, you know, maybe one more Heil, like just a little. And instead, Jojo says something like, screw you, Hitler, and then basically kicks him. And Hitler just like flies out the window like he's in the Matrix, just um, And that is, you know, the end of Hitler. But there's a scene before that that I would like mm-hmm. to ask you guys about. Yeah. There's a scene before that in which Hitler is angry about all the attention that Jojo is paying to, the, to this the Jewish girl in the wall, as he refers to her. Um, And he, for maybe like a 30-second scene, essentially transforms into as close as Waititi can come to an actual version Mm -hmm. of Hitler, um, like delivering a fiery speech about the fatherland. Right. Something that isn't really from Jojo's imagination exactly, but is from the historical record in the same way that other aspects of this Hitler that he's playing are not truly from the imagination of a, you know, a 10 year old boy or whatever, or whatever age he is, but are gags and jokes uh, that are clearly the, the creations of a Kiwi writer director in 2019. And so, one of the ways that I felt like this movie was playing with this idea that it didn't really have the guts to completely embrace um, was that this isn't exactly really a child's eye view of Nazism. 
that's like a simpler, more coherent, more structurally sound movie than this one is. This movie has is a lot of different ideas about Nazism, that it's scary, that it's stupid, that it's funny, that it's uh, terrible, that it's evil, that the uniforms are kind of cool. Like it, it sort of throws all the shit into the mix. And what I can't decide about this movie in the end is whether um, whether I wish he had made the sort of more rigorous, uh, more structurally sound movie that would be implied if you sort of pitched this to me and said it's a child's eye view of Nazi Germany. Yeah. I mean, that just feels like not the movie that Taika Waititi would certainly not the movie he would naturally make at all. Clearly it wasn't. I mean, he's just, I mean, I think, I I think that movie would hold up better to scrutiny for sure. And would be the kind of movie where, I mean, it seems like this movie, for example, is going to enter the, Uh, best picture race Mm -hmm. and and to some extent it already has and it's one of those movies that i like right now that i already know that two months from now i'm probably going to have turned on almost entirely (laughs) because people because it will be tipped to defeat a bunch of other movies like you know parasite perhaps marriage story which i haven't seen that are a lot better um and Quite naturally, we will say, okay, this is a movie I liked. Is it the best movie of the year? And when we hold it up under that scrutiny, all these flaws will pour forth. And it's just, I mean, the ways in which Taika Waititi is really good, I feel like, have a lot more to do with his his lightness and and in many ways his childishness right like he's he's very good in this movie because it is so easy for him and he works so well with child actors i think because he's so good at putting himself in the mindset of a child yeah and yeah when that moment where he steps out of it there's a reason to do that in in that the movie wants to simultaneously make nazis look ridiculous but also acknowledge that they were uh, serious enough to kill, you know, six million Jews and many others. Um, so it just felt like one more piece of f- more serious fascistic spaghetti that that <laughs> didn't quite work. I don't know about you, Sam. Yeah, for me, I mean, I feel like maybe the single most effective thing about this movie is not even just his performance, but so much as the fact that I, I love on the fact that Hitler is played by a Maori Jew right. in this movie because, I mean, part of the worry going in is like, well, what if Nazis like see this movie and like it? And it, it, and it's like, well, they can't. Like, it, I mean, the very, the idea of Hitler being played by a Maori Jew is so intolerable to anybody with that mind that it like kind of, like it, it sort of Nazi proofs it in in a way, and I I don't. Is that the bar though? That's the bar. No, but but no, but I mean, but I like, but I I mean, I think there's something kind of powerful in that and i i think it um you know i i i sort of almost support it kind of in principle more than in practice like i think some of the the responses to this movie effectively say like you know this is still a kind of too important a subject and you can't you know treat it in uh, lighthearted is not even the right way but in a, in a sort of you know satirical or you know approach a serious subject with comedy and i just um i think it's important to kind of, you know, preserve that. I don't think this is the most sort of deft or insightful um, attempt at that. Right. The question is, it's not can you approach this serious a subject with comedy? It's can you approach this serious a subject as sloppily as this movie does? That's where it causes me trouble. When you have a movie that wants you to take its satire of Nazism seriously, but also includes that German Shepherd joke and also 
pulls at your heartstrings with a monster truck, like in a way that I think is like onerous at times, but also includes like really vivid, sharp, naturalistic performances from Thomas and Mackenzie, for example. It's the mixed bagness of it that I think is not suitable to the subject matter, not the comedy of it. You you guys were holding two different bars up to against this movie to see whether this movie measures up to them. And I just kind of go back and forth between those. And that's part of what I was getting at, kind of flashing forward to how I know I'm going to feel about this movie once it becomes more a part of the Oscars uh, conversation. Part of me thinks about it a little bit more the way that you were talking about it, Sam, where it's like, okay, I mean, as long as it's not actually inspiring more Nazis or becoming any sort of tool of fascists, then if somebody wants to have some fun with this, especially a Jewish person, then like, why not? And who am I to judge? And so on. And on that level, I think it works. But then if you start to talk about what should a Holocaust movie be, then under that standard, I don't think it really works. Or even what should an audience expect out of a movie in this day and age that addresses this particular subject, right? Which is sort of the big question in the side of the room is, is this kind of irreverence and messiness suitable for a time when actual fascism seems like a real actual problem we need to deal with. And, and I just, you know, I saw this movie at a film festival in rural Virginia. Um, and you know, the audience walked out of this movie on a huge high. They absolutely loved it. And I also just really got the sense that for this audience, they, they didn't view this as just like, a spot of fun at the expense of Nazis. They viewed it as an inspirational movie uh, that has a lot to say about our time, which I don't think it is. And I think positioning it as such is also what frustrates me, which is to say, I agree with you that if this was not a best picture movie, I would like it so much more. Well, I really want us to get um, to the very, very end of this movie, because I do think the very, very end of this movie does have something to say about both what happened in this time, uh, just to say in the during World War Two, and also something to say to people in America and in many other countries that are experiencing, you know, rises in far right nationalism and stuff right now. Um, so just to briefly spoil what happens you know, first Jojo tries to trick Elsa into thinking that actually Germany won. And the Americans um, have not taken over the city. Yeah, exactly. And this ruse doesn't work for very long because he starts to feel bad and he hatches a quote unquote escape plan for her. And then so she comes out in the streets. She sees that, in fact, you know, the Americans and allied forces have won. And then uh, they start dancing and we start to hear David Bowie's heroes again in German because David Bowie also spent a bunch of time in Germany just like the Beatles did and that moment for me really worked like it really moved me and I'm actually surprised that I'm getting a little goosebumpy right now I promise my goosebumps aren't just to hopefully help defeat your argument Dan (laughs) self-serving goosebumps but um it spoke to me as basically the message of this movie and it's pretty much stated outright in a quote from rilke that appears on screen (laughs) which is no feeling is final right and and so it they try to end on this moment of hope that says even in the craziest times like this too shall pass 
and people will get to go back to normal and the Beatles will go to Germany and they'll start like uh, popularizing rock and roll and David Bowie will record his Berlin trilogy and all of that like again the more I talk about it and think about it the more it seems a little glib and not up to the occasion of the Holocaust nonetheless (laughs) I found it to be a little bit moving to me as somebody who does start to feel some pretty dark things during these times and to just have this reminder via art that it will pass and maybe someday people will just get to dance in the streets a little bit was helpful for me I found it Would moving. Would you deny me this? No, I will not deny you that. I found it moving as the character note and a callback to JoJo's mom's discussion right. of dancing as sort of the ultimate kind of freedom, like right. freedom in your body and freedom in space. Again, that is a lovely message for a movie to pass along. But when it is the movie about Nazis that is about to get nominated for a bunch of Oscars, like it's the wrong message to be passing yes. along. Like, never again is a way more effective message than, well, if again, at least at the end it'll be over. The truth is, Dan, we completely agree about this. And if (laughs) if you were making my side of the argument, I would be saying the exact same things that you have been saying, which is what I thought I was going to have to say during the spoiler. I was somewhat surprised that uh, I liked it more than you did. Sam, do you want to resolve this conflict between me and Dan? I mean, I love that moment. I love the kind of the parallelism, the kind of bookends uh, with the Beatles song at the beginning. I love it as a sort of... Uh, him to the transcendent power of, of pop music and its ability to, you know, bridge chasms between people from different um, backgrounds. I don't totally know what it's doing at the end of this movie or that it works, but I, I, I love it like, kind of as a gesture and as a moment. And I don't think it totally, uh, maybe the movie just hasn't quite earned it at that point. It's but. very Wes Anderson, right? It's an yes, extremely totally. Wes yes. Anderson moment. It's a perfect and, piece of music chosen at the perfect time and a perfect bit of like filmed business that provides a grace note at the end of this thing. And in fact, you know, I was already saying earlier that uh, the sort of Hitler youth child camp sequence reminded me a lot of Moonrise Kingdom. And Moonrise Kingdom ends with a shot of a young boy and a young girl dancing along to some sort of, I don't think it's Bowie, I don't remember what it is exactly, (laughs) in slow motion. Look, Taika Waititi, I still think, is one of the most interesting writers and directors Mm -hmm. who is making things. I don't actually think he's made a truly bad movie. Eagle versus Shark is like mediocre, but not truly bad. I'm so interested to see what he does when it's not a project he's been sort of carrying along with him for a decade plus, when it's something right now forces him to write from scratch. Like that's the movie I want to see. And I think that even up till now, even what after this movie gets nominated for Best Picture, the best movie he's made is Boy, which is the movie most from his own life. And that doesn't mean that he should be making Maori stories for the rest of his life, but it does mean that what I want to see next from Taika Waititi is something where he's trying to think about like the world now and his place in the world now or an artist's place in the world now. And I think that's what I want from him next. I feel like between Thor and this, I think he's figured out big palettes. I would like him to go a little bit small again. Yeah. I think we've resolved our conflicts. No feeling is final. (laughs) Thank you, Dan, for coming on and spoiling JoJo. My pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, first. Thanks for listening. 
Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil next, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our audio engineer is Merritt Jacob, and our producer is Rosemary Belson. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.